will, turn with me to our scripture lesson for today, Luke chapter 19, beginning at the 11th verse. Luke 19, I'll be reading from the old King James. Follow with me with whatever translation is in your hand. This is God's word. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well done, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little have thou authority over ten cities? And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept, laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest what thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then, gave, wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto him, he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which shall which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Our lesson tonight finds our Lord somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. He is in the company of hundreds, maybe thousands of pilgrims who come every year up from various points in Israel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of the high points in Israel. Just, there's no extra charge for this, just a little added information. Did you know that the lowest point on the face of the earth is at the Dead Sea? 
in Jericho, it's like 1,400 feet below sea level. <clears throat> Jericho is about 200, 300 feet below sea level. But Jerusalem is like 2,500 feet above sea level. It, it is one of the high points in Israel. There are three mountains of, at Jerusalem. There is the Mount of Olives, Mount Moriah, upon which the temple sits, and then Mount Zion, or the western mountain. And so from all points in Israel, they at some point are going up to, ascending up to Jerusalem. They, In your, your Psalms, you'll notice... From Psalm um, 120 through 134, the, those are psalms of ascent. Your Bible may say that at the top of the psalms, or psalms of degrees. And the, the pilgrims traveling up would sing these psalms of ascent. Sometimes the, the priest would sing them as he would step up into the temple. So he's been traveling. Um, but, you know, the Lord tells parables, he makes illustrations, and he created all things for his own purpose. He uses the familiar things, the things that are around us, that we are uh, immediate to us, to tell us about things that are not so familiar, things that are eternal, he created the world that way. He uses things in farming or things in nature. Uh, you think of the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, for instance. The vine dresser. Um, those sorts of things. He even has used this pilgrimage to go up to Jerusalem. They, they would go every year to celebrate the great feasts surrounding Passover at the, as the highlight of that week. But when Jesus began this journey, you see, he's, he's nearing the end of his ministry. Within uh, just a few days of his arrival in Jerusalem, he would be killed. He would be crucified, buried, and he would be raised from the dead. And in about eight weeks, he would ascend into heaven and that's what he had in mind when he began this journey back in Luke chapter 9 51 it says and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem your translation may that he may read that he it came uh, when it came to pass that he should be received up into glory or that he should ascend into heaven, or that he should be received by God. But various translations read a little differently. This is a picture as they ascend up to Jerusalem, Jesus is going home. He is ascending to God. And that's the picture that he is telling us about here. He also uses parables. It, beginning in chapter uh, verse 11 here, it says, As they heard these things, what things? He had just come, come through Jericho. Along this way, already they'd seen him do miracles. He had healed two blind men. And, and just before this, he had brought to saving faith a little fella named Zacchaeus, who had had him up in a tree and 
Zacchaeus got up in the tree to see Jesus. Well, Jesus arranged that, didn't he? he that was part of his plan to, to put on display this little fellow, to show the grace of God. And then it says that right after he says that this fellow is a child of Abraham and salvation has come to his house, Jesus gives his mission statement, why he came to earth in the first place. Verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. That's Jesus' mission statement. And it should be ours. Our, our purpose in life is to seek and to save that which is lost as the Lord gives us the ministry of reconciling sinners to God. As they heard these things, he spake a parable because, he tells us why he's going to tell the parable, because he's getting close to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should appear immediately. As they topped the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem would appear, and they are starting to believe, perhaps, that this is the guy. This is the Messiah. And they think the Messiah is going to bring righteousness to the world. Eventually, he will. That he will rid Jerusalem of the oppression of Rome. But that's not his purpose now. That he will sit on the throne of his father David. Well, he will, but not now. And he tells them this parable. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and to return. It's going to take a long time to go to a far country and come back. That should give us all comfort. The Lord's been gone now 2,000 years, and but he told us it would be a long time. It's a far country where he would go and receive a kingdom. He's using another familiar thing for the people around him to see an unfamiliar thing. In the history, immediate or relatively immediate history before this, uh, a story was known to everyone. A situation that happened in the kingdom of Israel. Herod the king, Herod the great, was a uh, a very theological term. He was a knothead. And he had three knothead sons. Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. Herod received his kingdom from Rome, a far country. And his three sons would have to do that too. When he died, the kingdom would be divided among those three sons. But each one had to go to a far country to receive the kingdom and then return to it. They had to go to Caesar Augustus. Archelaus would be the one who would rule over this part of Israel, Jericho and Jerusalem. Archelaus had a big palace right there in, in Jericho. But when he went to receive the kingdom, the Jews hated him so badly that they sent 
a delegation after him to appeal to Caesar, we do not want this man to rule over us. Why? When he first became king, before he went to, to actually officially try to receive it from Caesar, to show his authority, he put a Roman eagle over the temple. Well, some young Jewish boys tore it down and burned it. Archelaus killed them. So there was an uprising in Jerusalem. Archelaus killed 3,000 people to establish his rule. So he went to Caesar Augustus to receive his kingdom. The Jews went also and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. So Caesar Augustus, being a diplomat, says, okay, Archelaus, you can have the kingdom, but you're not going to have the title. You won't be called the king. You've got to earn that from the people, which he never did. So this is clearly in the minds of the people who hear this parable. As Jesus turns it on its head and says, this parable can also be a picture of me. I was not cruel. They hated me without a cause, he would say elsewhere. But clearly Jesus is the nobleman. Is there the, the word in Greek means of noble birth or of a great birth? Can there be a greater birth than Jesus' his father is God? And he calls to him his servants. His servants would be believers, would be his disciples. The citizens listed here would be those who don't know it, his enemies, those who are not wanting him to rule over him. But he calls his servants and he gives them, it says, each the same amount, one pound or one mina, your translation may say. This parable reads a lot like, there are a lot of similarities with the parable mentioned in Matthew 25, 15. But that time, at that time, Jesus has already gotten to Jerusalem and he's making another illustration about it, making another point altogether. The, the key to that is in Matthew 25, 15, it says, unto, unto one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. That one is more about talents. Uh, we know that talent and mine are both degrees of money, but... In Matthew, it is more like what we think of talents. He gives each man abilities different from the other, different degrees, different amounts of, of uh, ability. And each one then is responsible to invest that in the kingdom. But here, you notice he gives each one the same thing. Ian Garrett, I think gets close to the right thing when he says what he's talking about is giving them their life. Each man is given a life. Each one of us is given a life and to invest it. I don't think that's exactly right. Um, he gave each one a mina, which is about three months wages. 
Jesus gave all of us his life, his spirit, his life. He invested about three years, three and a half years of his ministry, of his life. And he's given that to his disciples, his life. Now he's going to a far country and his kingdom's going to be built by us. I always think I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have come in some great show, great power and strength and done it all myself. And, and when he returns, it'll look more that way, I think. But he invested his life in just 12 men, really poured his life into three of those and said, see ya, y'all have the ball, run with it. So he's given them each the same amount, his life, the measure of Christ, and they are to invest it. They're to do business in the world. How does that look? Some of us are called to preach. Some of us are called to, to give to missions. Some of us are called to pray. Each one of us is given different tasks to perform, but we have the one life to invest. And so he goes to a far city and receives the kingdom that he's left and returns to claim it. We're now looking at the second coming of Christ, are we not? He comes back and he calls each of these ten. I think ten, the number of completion in the Bible, he's calling his whole church, every one of us. Each one to give an account. But he only uses three examples. The first one, he says, um, Lord, Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. Um, John MacArthur points out the fact that what humility is shown by this disciple. He calls him Lord. Your pound did this. Look what your pound did. I didn't do it. It was you who did it through me. It was your life. Your life through me bore fruit for you in this great amount. And then how lavish the grace of God, he gives him ten cities to rule over. That may be close to actually what happens with believers who are faithful. He'll give them authority over things. We will reign with Christ, it says, a thousand years. That's, that ought to just give us chill bumps. I don't know what that's going to be. Maybe I'll rule over a part of a county. That would be a very sparsely populated little rural county perhaps I don't know but whatever it would be it, it, it's great it's so much greater than than what would be expected um, Ian Garrett who I mentioned earlier is a, is a evangelical Anglican in England England he, he he says that near where his parents home is there's a cemetery and in the cemetery, there's a grave marker that has this inscription. Um, 
in memorial of Captain James Harvey, who whose pistol accidentally discharged, killing him when in the hands of his valet. And then the scripture verse, Luke 19, 17, well done, good, faithful servant. We hope that he meant James Harvey and not the valet. I thought it was cute. <clears throat> anyway, he's, he's, there's reward for faithfulness. The second comes, same scenario, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. It's your work, Lord, and look what it's done. Some of us don't have the same opportunities. We all have a life, but our life might be shorter than our friend's life. We may be in a very difficult mission field. The stories are legion of missionaries who have gone and they've invested their lives in, for years and years and maybe only saw one convert. Um, I think of my favorite missionary is Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and others were, um, spent their lives to go spend time with the Alka Indians and they were killed. It looked like that their work was futile, but then Elizabeth Elliott and Nate Saint's wife and others went back and at one time that entire tribe was converted. Amazing. Well, the amount of the reward is still the graciousness of Christ on display. And then this false, fake servant. I read it and I read it and I read it and I tried to read that he was actually a believer and then I can't see that. He doesn't love the Lord. He accuses him of thievery. He says, you, you take up what you don't put down. You reap what you don't sow, so I'm, I'm scared of you. I just hid what you gave me. We know people who make a profession of faith and say, well, you know, religion is a very private matter. That's, I don't talk about that. Really, the most important thing in all the universe for all time, and you won't talk about that because it's private. No, it's not. It's your life. It's the most important thing in life. Or maybe this is a picture of the really ultra-Calvinist who says, you know, one sows another uh, waters, and but it's Lord who the Lord who brings the increase. You don't need me. I mean, you know, it's all going to happen. What is supposed to happen? So I'll, I don't. You don't need me to do anything. Why does he tell you go therefore and disciple the nations? Why does he say that? John Piper wrote a little book, Don't Waste Your Life. And, and in there, uh, he talked about people who live their Christian life only concerned about the margins, only about the edges, only about the borders of life. They're, 
Their concern is not how much can I do for the Lord, but what is the minimum I can do and still make it in there? Or, or what is permissible? What can I get away with? It, it's like a perverse works religion that we're going to be judged by works, but what is the boundary here? Can I just squeak through? And if I've done that, that's all I'm really worried about. Because it's all about me anyway. Really? Piper writes, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. A life wasted. We are bought with a price. We are saved in order to be God's hands and feet in this world. We're not saved just for us. Are we that selfish? We are if we don't have His Spirit. If we really have His life, if His life lives in us, then it bears fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus said, we'll ask what we want and he'll do it for us. But if we don't bear fruit as a branch, we'll be cut off and thrown away. <clears throat> Please hear this. If You've probably heard me say it almost word for word this way before and I know you've heard other preachers say it it's the most simple thing but hear it if you never have heard anything before in your life and you never will hear anything again we're saved by God's grace not by our works you'll never accuse me of being a legalist in that way we can do nothing to save ourselves because Christ gave his life for us. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. We can't point to our life and say, look, am I not worthy of something? No, not worthy of a thing. But we're saved to do good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. It says it most clearly in Ephesians. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And most of the time, we draw a line under those verses and we're done. The next verse says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
Jesus said they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. We talk about what we do or do not earn. Has not Christ earned our loyalty, our obedience, our faith, our trust? To follow Him and to live for Him and to bear fruit for Him and to see His kingdom come. <clears throat> and there is loss of reward. There's loss when the seed is put in ground that doesn't bear fruit. It's trampled underfoot. Is choked out by the cares of this life, deceitfulness of riches. And here it's taken away from God by God and given to someone who is doing something with it. Give him more he'll give that man more of his life. He'll give him more abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He said that more would be done through us because he had to go to the kingdom. He had to go to his father. Isn't that fascinating? More wonderful things because his spirit still lives in us and works in us. Then, I think almost as a motivation, this last verse, 27... You almost wish you didn't have to read it. Sounds so hard, doesn't it? Those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Doesn't that sound brutal? And it is. It's absolutely brutal. Until we remember that such were we. We were enemies of Christ. We were alienated from him. Even as believers, there are times we don't want Him to reign over us. We want to do what we want to do. Lord, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? He would ask. We were all that way. But here's the, the rub. He will reign over all of us. He does reign over all of us. And he will reign over the Mormon, and he will reign over the Muslim, and he will reign over the Buddhist. And those who hate him, he will reign. When he returns, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, that guy is the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one and only. And when we remember that... Shouldn't that stir us up? That we want to tell someone? My best friend on earth is a Mormon. I love him. I've known him since we were two years old. I pray for him more than anyone I've ever prayed for. And I always will. But unless... He's converted by what I tell him, what other Christians tell him. 
Because Jesus is with the Father. He's been coronated as king. He's receiving his kingdom. And when he returns, it's not going to be to die on the cross again to save someone else. He's going to come back in judgment to rule and reign with a rod of iron. But as long now as we have opportunity to live a life, and if we have the life of Christ in us, surely that life should motivate us to tell all that we know about Jesus. Tell everyone we know. It may not be necessarily in words. It may be in living a life. But words are a part of it. We say, well, you know, they see me going to church and they see me doing, you know, living an honorable life. Christianity is not just morality. It's not being a moral person. It's the life of Jesus living in us. That's what Christianity is. If Jesus doesn't live in, in you, whatever you do is not Christianity. It may be moralism. We may not curse. We may not, you may restrain the inclinations of the flesh. But we're not saved. You know, they're moral Mormons. They're moral Muslims that are going to die and go to hell and be slain before our coming king unless they bow the knee now. Jesus is building his kingdom. He's using every means, every illustration, every life. The details of your life are just another mechanism that he can use to tell somebody about himself, to win another soul for his kingdom. Let him have his way. Don't waste your life. Let us all pray. Oh God, our Savior, we, we do love you. We are thankful, oh Lord, that you love us. What a wonderful Savior we have. That you came and walked these dusty roads and ascended up to Jerusalem to face the onslaught of your enemies. And your response was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You want to forgive. That is your life. You want to seek and to save those that are lost. And, and we were among those, scattered out there among the citizens. And out there now among the citizens are some of your lost sheep. They'll hear your voice. May they hear it in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.